Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, we are in the middle of a sermon series on our mission and values as a church. Um, we have kind of gone through our mission statement, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the last couple of weeks, we've been diving more into the values of who we are as a church. And so uh, the first value we did last week or two weeks ago which is this idea that we want to both em- to embrace both truth and mystery, that we view those as, as the right tension to hold. Um, secondly, we want to embody Jesus in kingdom ministry, and that's what we talked a little bit more about last week. And if y'all are interested in hearing more about those, they're all online, um, and, uh, and, which is actually a delight, the uh, Temple Emmanuel videos, all of our services for us. Um, and today, we are going to talk about our third value, which is to celebrate the good of God's creation. And um, I, I've, I've mentioned this before, all of these are on the website, but Within each value is uh, uh, sort of three subheadings, so to speak, and um, I think we can actually pull one up on the pull it up on the screen here. Uh, if y'all can, there we go. Um, and this is what we've written as the subheadings uh, for this value. We want to celebrate the good of God's creation by remembering that God's good creation, i.e., Genesis one, comes before the fall, Genesis three. And therefore, we can view all of creation in light of God's declaration that it is good. Secondly, by treating God's crowning achievement of creation, humankind with value and dignity, actively pursuing physical and spiritual flourishing for all. And third, by warmly welcoming people from all cultures, backgrounds, and abilities, recognizing that we are all made in God's image and equally sinners in need of Christ. Um, that's what we've written. Um, and so that's what we want to talk about together uh, this evening. And we're going to do so uh, by using two scripture passages. Um, I'm actually going to shorten one of them uh, because it, with the baptism it was going to be too long. Um, so we're not going to be able to discuss all of this either. Um, but we're going to shorten Genesis, uh, the Genesis passage to just three verses beginning in 26 and ending in 28. And then we'll read all of Revelation Together, So if y'all would uh, uh, follow along with me in your bulletins. Genesis 1, 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It says this After this, I, I being uh, the Apostle John, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing before the throne, uh, around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Would you all pray with me? Lord, as we talk about this together this evening, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, in 2007, uh, as this new generation of, uh, I guess, um, the oft-maligned millennials were entering college, um, there was a, a research, uh, a lot of research done about why millennials in particular um, uh, were leaving the faith, were, were uh, becoming uh, non-Christians. This book, there was a book um, uh, written by a man named David Klineman, who uh, is actually a kind of CEO and president of the Barna Institute, um, and he wrote this book called Un- Unchristian. And uh, if you were to read Unchristian, you'd know that there is a consistent theme uh, about why most non-Christians felt like Christianity was not worth their time. And it was that basically they believed that most Christians were more about condemnation, were more about what you couldn't do than what was right and what was good. Right, the church or Christians were very good at pe- telling people what not to do. And in essence, they found that Christians and therefore Christianity had very little positive to offer. Right? And this has, I think, only gotten worse since 2007. Right? I think that the cultural perception of Christianity has only gotten worse. A lot of, a lot of which is, is our own doing, if we're honest, as Christians. Um, right? We're still known more for what we're against, perhaps, than what we are for. Um, and I think that that's one of the main reasons why me and, and other uh, leaders at Advent were so adamant about this particular value statement. We wanted it to be very clear what we are for and that God actually is for uh, well before we ever entertain the issue of sin. Right? Um, the point is this. We want Advent to be known as a place that imbibes the Spirit. Right? Rather, we pray that we would be a spirit of welcome, of love, of empathy, and of celebration. I pray that people would know us for that and that God would know that we would know God through the fact that he is actually for them as we hopefully would be for them. All right? And this isn't just some sort of cultural conviction, but I believe this is one that we find rooted in the scriptures that we read here. Right? That, that as a people, yes, we are fracturing and yes, we are othering one another. Right? They are not mine. They are other. Um, I am not of that. Right? We believe that we have a biblical warrant to unite, to welcome, to love. Right? And so this evening I want to talk about God's creation and kingdom and how those two ideas at the beginning and the end of the Scriptures give us not just warrant but actually kind of commandment uh, unto this value. Right? And so I want to talk specifically about the bottom two elements of, of that value statement. First, I want to talk about how we are made in God's image. 
And second, I want to talk about the unity and diversity that we have in God's kingdom. So uh, let's talk about those two things together. And I'm sorry if the, I don't mean to distract you guys. When my microphone fell off, it just keeps falling. So uh, it, it's not bothering me. Hopefully it doesn't bother you guys. The first point is the image of God. Genesis 1 tells us that not only were all things created good in the beginning, but that mankind was created in God's image, in the image of God. So what does that actually mean? Right? You've probably heard it described this way, um, right? where, where to, to image God is to sort of have traits like God. Um, to have certain characteristics like Him, like our ability to love or our ability to create, um, right? That's what it means uh, to image God. And I don't think that that's, that that's not the answer, um, but I think that's an incomplete answer, right? There's some truth to that. To image Him does mean that we bear some of His likeness, but the image of God is less something that we possess, like His characteristics, and it's more something that we are, um, we are the image of God. Right? It's actually for that very reason that we are prohibited from creating images in God's likeness because we are the image of God. He has already done that. Right? Um, so why would we carve one when we are one? Right? We image him to the world just in our very existence but the problem comes with, okay, well, yes, I'm an image bearer, you're an image bearer, but we live in a sinful world where we ourselves sin. Um, and so we're going to pull up a second uh, picture here. If y'all probably are aware that there are thousands of Roman statues of Roman gods, and almost all of them are headless. Because anytime somebody came to capture a foreign city, you would dismember a statue. Um, so, much like this headless statue of Venus here, so too because of sin are we now formless or are we marred, right? Yes, you can still sort of see the image, right? You can still sort of tell the form, but it's not as it was intended to be. Well, that's what it means that we are sinners still made in the image of God, like this statue of Venus. Thanks, guys. Right, most of the time, it isn't as evident when we're looking at the lives of other humans who God is and what He's like, but all humans are created in God's image nonetheless. We're all still image bearers despite that damaged status. And one of the most overlooked aspects of what this actually means is our own relationship with ourself. You are created in the image of God. That means you are endowed with dignity and worth. Not because you're amazing and beautiful and people like you and right, all those sorts of things. I, I, I believe that. I, I, I like you guys. But because you're made in the image of God to reflect, to embody, to body forth the Creator. Certainly there are some in our world or in our culture who've taken this idea of self-love or, or self-interest way too far, right? They've misunderstood uh, the image for the main thing. They've, they've tried to kind of scoot God off the throne and take the seat themselves. But there are also some of us who view ourselves as worthless, right? Who've misunderstood the image of God that opposite way, Right? Failing to see anything that reflects the good of our Creator within ourselves. 
failing to acknowledge anything of value in ourselves. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done or left undone, you have worth. In many ways, if we actually think about it, if you struggle with self-loathing or, or worthless thoughts, that's actually just a, a really negative form of vanity itself as well. Right, where we still see God's world as revolving around us, but rather than a bright star at the middle of that universe, we're more like a black hole, kind of sucking all of the light out of God's good creation. And so recognizing that we image God as a step back toward placing Him rightly as the focal point of our world, in essence. So you have worth, you have dignity, Right? But so now also does every other human that you encounter. The most worthless humans that you encounter are image bearers and therefore not worthless. The addict who's tweaking underneath uh, the highways near downtown, he's an image bearer. The Instagram influencer with per perfectly cultivated uh, feed is an image bearer. Vladimir Putin is an image bearer. The politician that you hate is an image bearer. The waitress who screwed up your order, image bearer. The passive aggressive neighbor that you don't want to talk to, image bearer. Your annoying coworker or, or co-student, classmate, image bearer. And it behooves us to learn to treat other humans as fellow image bearers. And that doesn't mean this, right? Oftentimes when we hear these sorts of things, that means, okay, I'm going to kind of like do the southern nice thing. I'm going to be nice, but I'm still going to kind of hate them in my heart. I'm still going to not see them as image bearers nonetheless. No, we're called to love them, not to be nice to them. It means that we're called to recognize the image of God in them, to treat them with dignity and worth to treat them as humans. And in our world where everything is changing so rapidly, right, where definitions, um, perceptions of things like identity and things like facts are changing so constantly, where technology even or artificial intelligence is leaving us all of these things just like whirling in the wind, feeling groundless without anything to stand upon, the doctrine of the image of God is what is supposed to ground us. Right? Because no matter, no matter what is going on, no matter what viewpoint is being taken, we can and should be reminded that another human being is made in the image of God. And it's the image of God that helps us to hold firm to this quickly bowing cultural winds. We're called to treat our employees as image bearers. We're called to treat our political opponents as, as image bearers. And we're called to treat people who are struggling with gender identity as image bearers, because we're all created by God and all created in His image. So if that's our, our first point, let's talk a little bit about our second, which is the unity that we have in the midst of diversity. Um, one of the most interesting observations in UnChristian, the book, is that non-Christians found it unchristian uh, that the church was as divided, if not more so, than the culture. Right? In particular, those outside the church see that within the church, they see that there is a kinder attitude toward ideological allies than to brother and sisters in Christ who have a different set of political values. 
So in essence, this was the thought. Why listen to the church if the church itself doesn't treat those within with love? What does the church have to offer when it separates into tiny homogenous little groups that cast insults at one another just like the middle school cafeteria that we all loved, right? Is there hope for the church in the midst of that struggle? At the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, as we read, the Apostle John is, giving a, is given a vision of what the future will look like. In the kingdom of God, image bearers of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation are gathered together before the Lamb of God. And these people don't have uniformity, right? They don't share nationality, they don't share race or politics, they don't share the same language. But they are all united, right? They're united in the garments that are washed white, right? They're united in the saving grace of Jesus Christ who has made them pure, who has made them holy. God is in the midst of transforming a separated, like a fractioned out multicultural world into a united kingdom underneath his authority, underneath his kingship and lordship. And I've heard it described as an orchestra, right, where he has taken all of our individual groups of, of sounds and, and, and instruments and bringing about a beautiful harmony to worship and to proclaim his name together. And that's part of what that Revelation passage is describing. So as Christians, we don't become monolithic in our culture. That's not what the scriptures illustrate or what the scriptures teach. Jesus doesn't doesn't say, come and follow me and cease to be a Texan, right? You need to learn Aramaic and now dress like me. No, as Christians, we don't believe that, right? We also, we don't believe that there's any language that's more holy than one another. That's the main reason why the church has believed that it's so important to, to translate the Bible into every language on earth, because there is no language that's holier than any other. There is no culture that's holier than others because our righteous and our holy God has become a man. Not to say, well, you know, this culture that I have entered into, this particular time and space is the one that you all need to, uh, need, you know, need to follow. No, but it's saying that this culture, the way of the cross, is what you are called to follow. That is what is meant to unite us as Christians. Not anything else. So at Advent, we want to place, we want to be a place that celebrates the unity that we have with one another in Jesus Christ amidst all other diversity. That's why we like to use different creeds. Uh, this morning, we, uh, this afternoon, we didn't because of the, of the baptismal liturgy, but normally we use different creeds from different parts all around the world, different times even to be reminded of the diversity that we have in the Christian faith. I pray that our church would also become and be a church that, that welcomes people of all, all aspects of diversity, different cultural backgrounds, different age backgrounds, different parts of this city. We want to be a place that welcomes people of different, different ableness, of different race, allowing their voices and their cultures to fill out the missing harmonies that we all need to hear, allowing for people of different ableness to, to fill us with the joy that they just so naturally have. 
I pray that we would be a church that partners with other churches in the area um, and other parts of the world so that we can focus on what unites us in the midst of a diverse world as well. I, I think that this is incredibly important because without being around different people, um, without being around that diversity uh, within the church, we become increasingly blind to our own sin patterns. We get tunnel vision, unable to see the enormity of God's work in the world and unable to see the enormity of sin in our own hearts. Right? How might, our, Christ, how might uh, uh, our Christian thoughts about war be challenged if we spent time with our brothers and sisters in Christ during the first century? Or with Christian pacifists? Or with Christian soldiers? How, how might our blind spots about money be challenged if we spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ from different parts of the world, from impoverished areas, or from uh, places that place different types of, of value on other material goods? You can probably think of countless of other ways where you have already been challenged to grow in your faith by spending time with someone who has different views than your own. Because they help us to follow Jesus, to put to death sin in our own life that we're blind to, and to be more fully developed into the likeness that he has for us. May we learn to partner and to celebrate what God is doing inside of our walls, inside of our cultures, but also outside of our walls and outside of our cultures as well. Because as we do that, then we show forth what the kingdom of God is ultimately going to be like when we're gathered together with every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Let me conclude with this. Um, the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature, which means it's, it's, um, it's literature written to people who are going through a massive sense of struggle with visions to, to remain faithful despite whatever that struggle is. And so, uh, so in particular, we see a vision to help faithful Christians in the midst of the struggles of the first and second century. It helps them to live faithfully and to identify what is true evil and what is true goodness. And so in this context of a church that's gathering together for the very first time, Jew and Greek, men and women, slave and free, where these people are brought together in unity, what does it look like for them to be able to begin identifying what is good and what is evil? Because I've often thought it was you, right? Is the evil of those people or is it me? Right? And the picture that Revelation helps us to see is that God is building a different sort of community. Those who might think, uh, well, they're the troublemakers, they're the evil ones. God is actually bringing those very people into this community. So what is good? Is it me or is it Jesus? Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story um, with this passage in mind. It's actually titled Revelation. Um, and and it's, it's, story, it's a story that centers around a southern woman by the name of Mrs. Turpin uh, who lives according to the, the good southern code. Right? Um, she's a good woman, at least in her own eyes. And uh, the story mostly takes place in a doctor's office where she's encountering and carrying on pleasant conversations uh, with other people in the office, uh, just where there's all sorts of pleasantries that are covering over her massive judgmentalism. And so Mrs. Turpin keeps thanking God silently that she's not like 
the trashy people or the poor people or the ugly people um, uh, that she sees around the room. Thank you for making me me, she says. In the waiting room, there's also a young girl named Mary Grace, uh, who actually most people think Flannery O'Connor is sort of viewing herself more as Mary Grace here, who has been silent, observing Mrs. Turpin. And finally, after listening to Mrs. Turpin's conversation with another woman, Mary Grace throws her textbook at Mrs. Turpin, yelling, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Again, if you've ever read Flannery O'Connor, only she can kind of do this type of thing. Mary Grace sees through Miss Turpin's self-righteousness, and she rightly names the vice that comes from, where it comes from, and the true appearance that vice actually is. Mrs. Turpin is so shocked by Mary Grace's attack that she begins to examine her own life and and to try and justify herself against the attack, and it turns out that she can't. She's stuck. Maybe, maybe Mary Grace was right about her. And at the end of the story, Mrs. Turpin has a vision of heaven. And this is what O'Connor wrote. And I'm actually going gonna to pull it up on the screen for you guys as well. It says this. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a, fil- a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of black people in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics clapping and shouting and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the the procession was a tribe of people who she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good, old, for, for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Y'all, Jesus is burning away every virtue that we think we have. As, as I mentioned earlier, we still struggle with the idea of who is good, who is evil. We think so highly of ourselves. But y'all, God is reminding us that Jesus is good. And that oftentimes when we look and think of ourselves as right and good, yes, we are endowed with every dignity. Yes, you are not worthless by any means. But in Jesus Christ only are we made good. In Him is, is unity possible in the midst of diversity. God has made all of His creation good. He has made us in His image. And Jesus reminds us that all who are in Him, robed in His white righteousness, are good ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate that consistently. Would you all pray with me unto that end? Our God and Father, we thank You. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we are made good. And so, Lord, we pray that in the midst of of our sin, in the midst of what we believe to be our virtue, Lord, that you would melt that away, that the only virtues we would have are in Christ, and that we would learn to follow him in faith. 
Father, may we see and treat others with dignity as you created them, giving worship and honor and glory to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.